Thank you so much, Emma. I appreciate it. I see these breath mints for me in case any of you get close. Yeah, it's a delight to be here and uh, a privilege to be connected in through different people in the town. Philip, my sister, and then Marty, for those of you who know Marty, Nardis knows Marty. She does a lot of homeschooling stuff. She came through recently. And so it's a delight to be here. Some of you I've met before. I'm not going to remember all of your names, so uh, hope, hopefully there's no test. But I thought I'd just share a little bit of my own journey and then take some questions. And uh, there's multiple facets to what we do. Uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, we did a session on Lemon for Lovers. So I've written another book, <laughs> Lemon for Lovers. You can get it up on Amazon. It's an e-book. And looks at this whole question of marriages because we have found over the years just many situations where marriages have been reconciled just through people understanding each other better. And uh, so we do Lemon for Lovers every now and then. And uh, so, yeah, Lemon Leadership. I'll get to that in a moment, perhaps, but I'll just back up and tell you some of my stories. So for my sins, I was born in Johannesburg, and uh, <laughs> actually it was fine. I don't remember too much, except uh, my brother setting the field alight across from our house. I remember that. We wanted to see how quickly it would burn, and uh, they had to call the fire department and so on. And then we moved back to Landudno, where my parents, uh, when they first moved into Landudno, they'd started a little church there. It's still going. And uh, so that's where we grew up. And Landudno, there wasn't much going on back then. It wasn't a fancy place to live. It was just, you know, cold foot and pretty relaxed. And uh, quite a few things started in Landudno. The, the school started in our house, so the life-saving club, the church, all sorts of things. But then there was only a handful of houses. There were more Johnsons in Landudno than anybody else. They weren't related, but that's just the way it worked out. And uh, then I went to high school in Seep at uh, Weinberg Boys High and then to the Army, then UCT. Along the way, I worked with Youth for Christ. So Lynn and I were on the associate staff for about 10 years and ran a youth group. We both ran, each ran a Sunday school, her in Hart Bay, me in Landudno. And then we got married. And shortly after that, we ended up with a church in our lap. And it was one of these churches that was started like by an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. But actually, it was like a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a Brethren, and a Congregationalist. Four business people started a church. And you might be wondering, actually, well, what are four business people doing starting a church? But I, I uh, came across a writing from a rabbi who said that the way they would start a synagogue was they would have a quorum of 10 business leaders. And when they had 10 business owners, that became the start of a new synagogue. And then, if they all tithed, then they would, then they would get a rabbi or a teacher in to look after the 10 business leaders who actually then looked after their people. It's a great model for, for church planting, actually. So that church, my dad was one of the, the four business people, and that church got up and going. And they had a very charismatic leader who was leading the church, and I just got this feeling that not everything was right. So I encouraged the guy to put elders in place and deacons and this kind of stuff, and he appointed two elders. I was one of them. I was 23. The other guy was a proper elder <laughs> who had the sense to leave town. And... Uh, and then the whole thing blew up, and so uh, Lynn and I ended up with a church in our lap when we were just newly married, 24 years old. And it was a, it was a big problem. 
but we, you know, by the grace of God, everything stuck together, and we were able to rebuild the foundations of the church, put proper leadership in place, set everything in place. But at that time, I developed a bit of a hatred for the word full-time ministry. Actually, not the word full-time ministry, but every now and then, some religious person would come up to me and say, when are you going to go full-time? I already had two full-time jobs. I was leading the church, and I was a senior manager at Price Waterhouse because I studied to become a chartered accountant. I had the biggest clients in the country, a seriously full-time job, and a church where we met 5.30 every morning with the leadership because there was this crisis going on. Often in the evening, preached on a weekend, led worship. I got rid of the youth group at that stage and the Sunday school, but we still had these two full-time jobs. Then I got a third job, and the third job was... Uh, a friend of mine had started Youth with a Mission in Africa. He was also a chartered accountant, worked for Coopers in London, and on his honeymoon, he and his wife, Ian Muir was his name, Ian and Chestine started YWAM up in East Africa and then came down into South Africa. He was a Scotsman married to a Swede. And uh, so uh, he, in leading YWAM, they were going through a change from Hamanskral to Delmas, two garden spots in South Africa. <laughs> Nothing happens in those places. And uh, when you used to call Hamanskral, there was a guy on the switchboard, and he would answer the phone, Hamanskral. And then you had to tell him where you wanted to, and he plugged you in, and then he listened in on the calls because he was bored out of his mind, you know. And uh, so anyway, I began to consult to YWAM, and I found out that they would ask for evangelists, for preachers, for Bible teachers, but what they really needed was IT, marketing, sales, finance. That's what they needed. But they didn't speak that language. And as a pastor, I had these people in my church underutilized. And so I began to figure out the people that were sitting in my church, businessmen and women, engineers, school teachers, were actually second-class citizens in the body of Christ, the cool job was to be the pastor. If you didn't like your pastor, you got rid of him and you called him a church planter and sent him to another village or something. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it was crazy in the body of Christ as you looked at it that 95% of the people were underutilized. And so uh, I began to train up all of our business leaders, these school teachers, engineers, and so on, to actually be leaders in the body of Christ but stay in their regular jobs was the point. Some of them didn't. Some of them went off and started mission organizations in Malawi or planted churches in New Zealand or New Jersey or wherever. But the fact is that this notion of how do you integrate your work and your faith was a passion of mine. And how do you get rid of this fake segregation between what's secular and what's sacred? So how do you recognize that God is one there's not a God for Monday and a God for Sunday. How do we put those things together? So when we went to the States uh, in 1986 with two small kids, as we landed in San Francisco, God said to me, this is going to be your home for quite a while. Now, we were gone for one year. We had four suitcases, a bag of Duplo, uh, four knives, forks, spoons, two sleeping bags, $300. We thought we were okay. The $300 was gone in two days. But... Uh, but I had to ask God, why do you want us to stay in the States? And he spoke to me and said, I want you to bridge the worlds of business, of missions, and of local church. 
How do you put those things together into one entity, put them back together? When those of you who are Duomenes, like Yanni over here, at least, you know, and I'm on perhaps at weddings, you hear what God has put together, let no man put apart, separate, right? And God put together business and ministry. Why? The Hebrew word for business is exactly the same word as for ministry. This is why Jesus would say, didn't you know I'm going to be about my father's business? It's the same word as for ministry. And the word for work and for worship is exactly the same. So you can say, my name is Herman, and I worship at my company, which is called whatever. It's the same thing as saying, my name is Herman, and I work at this business. It's the same thing. So in the Hebrew mindset, these things were one. And the scripture says, the Lord your God is one. But we've separated those things. We've adopted Greek thinking. So my passion is, how do you put those things together? So along the way, we started something called Professionals for Christ. And uh, within a week or so after starting it, I was in the Ukraine. And there I asked the guy who was the head of this denomination, what percentage of your pastors have regular jobs? He said, 99.9. I'm the only one who doesn't. All of them have regular jobs. And um, Professionals for Christ was a great name, except for nobody could agree what a professional was. <laughs> And when I landed in the Soviet Union, Christ wasn't a great name either. So we changed the name to Equip, actually, is what we did. And we began to run events for people in the marketplace, entrepreneurs, business people, and how to integrate their work and their faith. Along the way, I wrote a book called Convergence, which looks at how you integrate your career, your calling, your creativity, and your community. How do you take your communal life with your church and your community your work life, your calling, and your co-creating with God and put those all together in one package. And back then, people would say, yeah, but I don't know what my calling is because we always have an excuse. Like many people used to be called to China until you could go to China. <laughs> we get called to the impossible place and then, yeah. So people said, I don't know what my calling is. Nowadays, I said, I'll tell you your calling in two seconds. You're called to work. 100% of us. Who pays you, whether Shofar pays you or Coca-Cola pays you, that's not the point. The point is you're called to work. And statistically, the majority of us are called to the marketplace, just numbers-wise. Even in the tribes of Israel, you've got to say at least 11 out of 12 are called to the marketplace. That's what it is. And so now I tell people, you, probably call, you are called to work and you're probably called to your current job unless God moves you. And um, the question is, how does God repurpose you? Like God took David in Psalm 78. It says in verse 70, God took David from being the shepherd of the sheep and made him what? Amanda, do you remember? No. Well, he did. But there was something else. Elizabeth? You know. The shepherd of Israel. So what did he do? He took a shepherd and he made him a shepherd. So God will take an accountant and will make him a kingdom accountant. He will take a fisherman and he'll make him a fisher of men. God's not stupid. He's a good asset manager. So he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to take Philip over here and make him a rock star or a ballerina. It's not going to happen. You know, In <laughs> no matter how many cool hats he wears, it's not going to happen. 
Yeah. So typically, he will take you in your current profession and give it a kingdom twist, put it on steroids. That's what he'll do. But the, the devil tricks us because people are sitting and waiting to discover what their calling is. I met a guy in Cape Town. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm called to be a church planter. I said, where? I don't know. He said, God hasn't told me yet. When? No, I don't know. I said, so what do you do now? He said, I'm a handyman. I, I fix people's plumbing and windows when they break and so on. I said, how many customers do you have? He was in the Tableview area. 125 houses. I said, how many people in each house? Four people in each house, roughly. I said, so until you take care of those 500 people, as if they're your church, God's not going to send you anywhere. And so... Um, and the same is true for business people. I had a guy come to me from uh, Agilent, which was a spin-off from Hewlett-Packard. And he told me, ah, oh, he's going to Western China to plant a church. And his wife had resigned from a senior position in high tech. And I said, if I were God, I wouldn't trust you to plant a church in Western China until you planted one inside Agilent, inside your company. I said, in your company, you have free meeting space, you have free coffee, <laughs> You're a senior person with influence. They all speak English. If you can't start a church inside Agilent, how can you start one in China? So there's now a group that meets in Agilent. Now, they are atheists, they are agnostics, they are undeclared, and there are some Christians. But that's fine. And uh, so you get the picture. Anyway, I don't know where I was in my story. So long st story short, I left Pricewaterhouse, went to KPMG, went to computer sciences. We started our own company in 1996 in Silicon Valley called the Institute for Innovation, Integration, and Impact, a whole long name. And uh, it's like I only have eyes for you. That's the theme song, yes. So the, in the Institute, and, uh, but it's a hybrid organization. We have the head of a think tank, so we like to think we think about what's coming down the road. And then uh, the hands of a business. Our operating model is a business why we can get into any country in the world through the front door with a genuine business. And, and they can Google us. They can find out that we believe us. So I went to, we've, we moved to Melkbos. We got a house there a little while ago. And I was chatting to a lady, and she said she was a missionary in Morocco. But they banned from going into the country. Why? She was a school principal and a child came to Christ. They said, you must have known about it. And she and her husband can't get back in the country. I said, I was just in Morocco. <laughs> she said, what were you doing in Morocco? I said, I was doing lemon leadership with the governor of Casablanca, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And, uh, and he had 120 people in the session. The next day, I was with the Chamber of Commerce talking about how to have a high-impact business using what? Biblical truth underlying how you run a business. And the next day we were with entrepreneurs. Now there were the Muslim clerics checking us out, the secret police, but we can go in. They know we're believers. They can Google. They can find it out, but we're going in as a business. But our passion is how do we extend, extend the kingdom of God? So that is we have the heart of philanthropy or the heart of ministry. That's what it's about. So this is the three-in-one organization that we have. And um, so along the way, uh, we developed training called Repurposing Business. So we came across a bunch of young people in Silicon Valley, mostly smart MBAs from good schools. And I said, what do you want to do? They said, we want to transform the way business is done in the Bay Area. And I said, first, you have to be transformed. 
So I said, this is not the real world, Silicon Valley. You know, during, this was during the height of the whole dot-com era. And um, so I said, no, I'll take you to Africa, quote-unquote. You remember the old mission song, please don't take me to Africa? Please don't send me to Africa. Philip remembers that song. It was a famous song in America. Please don't send me to Africa. <laughs> I was chatting with old uh, Bruce Wilkerson. Remember them? The chair of the prayer of Jabez, which in Afrikaans is the prayer of Yabat. And um, yeah. So anyway, I was chatting with him, and he said he discovered in America there was one word that stopped people praying: "God extend my borders." Do you know what that one word was? Course. Africa. Africa. Because if I pray God extend my borders, he's going to send me to Africa. I don't want to go to Africa. And then he came to South Africa and he met you guys. And it was two words that stopped people praying. God extend my borders. New York. He said, if I say yes, God's going to send me to New York. I don't want to go to New York. I'd rather stay in George or Cape Town. Yeah. So there we go. So we began to train up business leaders in biblical principles for business. And we put a training together called Repurposing Business. And we've trained thousands of people, regular working people. And we teach them how to come alongside a business person to help them repurpose their business. We talked about David going from shepherd to shepherd, shepherd of sheep to shepherd of a nation. And our goal is to get a critical mass of organizations repurposed in cities so that change can come to that city. Why? Because this is where the harvest is ripe. Okay, so Amor, um, I had a lady tell me once, I don't believe the harvest is ripe, so tell me where is the harvest ripe? At a church visioning meeting, sitting around tables, there was like little pieces of wheat and all the stuff, pumpkins and everything, and they had the scripture printed out from Luke chapter 10, which says the fields are white unto harvest, the fields are ripe for harvest, go, and so forth. And this lady said to me, I don't believe it. I said, you don't believe what? She said, I don't believe the fields are ripe. In my school where I'm a teacher, the kids are starting a Satanist club. I don't see people asking about Jesus. So I had to go back at the scripture. And the scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, where the harvest is ripe. Now, do you believe the harvest is still ripe or not? You have to say yes, right? <laughs> okay, but where is it ripe? Jesus tells us five times. He said, okay, what you got to do is go out. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves and all this kind of stuff. Out you go. When you enter a house, say peace to this house. Do not move around from house to house. Stay in the house. Five times he tells us where the harvest is ripe. It's in the house. Now, a lot of churches have started calling themselves houses. <laughs> have you noticed that? Yeah, this is the house. But actually... Up and down the road over here is where the harvest is ripe, typically not inside the building. So, in those days, in Bible times, the business and the house was typically co-located. Right? Makes sense. Whether it was a farm, you were a blacksmith, you had a threshing floor, you had a wine press, the business and the house was, was co-located. And what you do is you go into the house and you find what in the Greek is the MMWC, the main man what counts, which Jesus calls a man of peace. That's where you find. It's the CEO. It's the MD. It's the worst guy in town. 
maybe, or a nice guy who doesn't know Jesus yet. When Jesus says to them, if a man of peace is there, stay in the house. Nobody says to him, what's a man of peace? Did you know that? But there's no man of peace in the Old Testament except to one vague reference to Solomon not being, you know, a guy who went around picking fights, but like his dad. So there's no reference, but Jesus had already demonstrated it to them. Remember the guy in Capernaum? Or Capernaum, as they say where he comes from. But remember the guy in Capernaum, the ruler who had a, a, a child, depending on which gospel you're in, that was ill. And Jesus speaks the word, and the person is healed, remember? And it says that the man believed and his whole household. And then it says in John chapter 4, this was the second miraculous sign. We all know the first miracle. What was it? Water into wine. Okay, what is, now water into wine, what we do is if you're a good preacher, you use that verse at a wedding. And you say, Jesus turned water into wine, therefore showing that he approved of marriage. How about that he approved of the wine industry? Drinking, supply chain. Right, I mean, let's be fair. Okay, anyway, we'll leave that one for the moment. But miracle number two is a whole household believes. So this guy was a man of peace. He was the main guy in the town. And when he believed, the whole town believed. His whole household. He believed he and his whole household. Who was the household? Okay, so who's, there's got to be a Johan here. Where's the Johan? Okay, there, okay, Johan. And so Johan, uh, what do you do? You're a what? Okay, an entrepreneur. What sort of business? How many employees? How many customers? 40,000. 40,000 customers. How many suppliers? Just one or two? Danelle. No. Okay, fine. I don't want to know what you're doing. Um, okay, so 40,000. All right. So from a biblical perspective, that's your household including your banker, your auditor, your lawyer, and the hunt who comes and cleans up your ammunition or whatever you do. So the point is, that's your household. So Acts chapter 2, well, in, in the book of Acts, what happens is there's a guy who hires a church growth specialist to come and tell him how to grow his church. No, this is not what happened. Okay, there's a guy who's not a believer. And an angel comes and tells Cornelius, go down to Joppa. You're going to find a guy, Peter, over there. And Peter's going to come and tell you how you and your household can be saved. So he's going to tell Johan how him and his household can be saved. Now, if Johan is thinking like he's going to go down to Victoria Bay with one line in the water to catch a fish. I've never seen anybody catch anything like that, but they do it anyway. I don't know why. But in the biblical concept, it was more like catching fish with a net. Put your net in, right? And your net is to catch your whole household. So the angel tells Cornelius, you and your whole family are going to get saved. So he gets the auntie, he gets the uncle, he gets the one with the teeth, without the teeth. He gets the servant, he gets the whole lot, and he packs the whole lot into the living room. And Peter shows up. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and Peter says, I give up. I'm going to have to baptize you guys. I didn't want to come, but I came. But you know what? The whole household got saved. So was that a fluke, or was there more? 
So next up, we have the businesswoman who, like Anne over here, was a dealer in purple. It is Anne, isn't it? It is purple, isn't it? Okay, right. Okay, so what was she? She wasn't like arts and crafts at the George-like community market down here. Purple was the color of the Roman army, so she was probably a military supplier. That's what she did. She and her ladies in her business. And you know what? They all got saved. The whole business got saved in one shot. But wait, wait, there's more. Because next up, we had Paul and Silas in jail. And remember the jailer. And Paul says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. A whole household saved at once. Net fishing, not line fishing. So that's the next thing that happens. And then there's a religious guy, Crispus, who was the head of the synagogue. He and his old household believed. And Noah built an ark for the salvation of what? Himself? No, his house. So the concept of that, and we know that that's a prototype for Jesus. So we've already seen that Jesus' second miracle, a whole household gets saved. Correct? And then remember Zacchaeus, the crooked tax guy. Today, salvation has come to this. Okay. There's 162 mentions of household in Scripture and one of being born again. But when you guys are preaching, I bet you tell people you've got to get born again. Why don't you say your whole household needs to get saved? We need to up our faith level. Where is the market ripe? Not in here, one at a time. Yeah, fishy, fishy, fishy. No, it's business to business. It's house to house. That's where the market is ripe. That's where we got to go. That's why we need to mobilize every single person who has a job who can put their bum in a seat, a pen in their hand, or fingers on a keyboard and teach them that they are ministers, that they're called to work, that if they don't work, they shouldn't eat. Nothing, no biltong, no pop, nothing, nothing. They're called to work, and they're called, probably called to the marketplace. Exceptionally, every now and then, occasionally, God will take somebody like Nardis and say, okay, leave your job in Pretoria and come and do, quote, unquote, full-time. But there's no full-time, there's no part-time. If you're a bond slave of Jesus Christ, it's 168 hours a week. That's it, 52 weeks a year. There's no full-time. There's no part-time. It's a complete uh, disgrace to Jesus Christ if we say some people are full-time, some people aren't. I mean, we're selling people short. We're saying, if you want to follow Jesus, it's 100% all of the time. And if you're an accountant, you better be an accountant for Jesus. If you're a preacher, you better be a preacher for Jesus. It's all work. Okay. So we've been mobilizing these business people and taking them out to teach CEOs, leaders of companies, to care for their household, to love them as if they're the kids. So we had a guy in Indonesia, single, 50 employees, all Muslim. And he decided to visit them in their homes. Once he understood, like Johan understands, that those 40,000 people are part of your household. By the way... If we did the math, if I looked at your customers, I'll, I'll come back to the sexes. Okay, I'm press pause. Remind me to come back to the Jakarta story, okay? Will you re remind me? Okay, there's this guy in Cape Town. Let's call him Dominic because his name is Dominic. And uh, <laughs> so Dominic is a rugger bugger. You know, he's a Navy, ex-Navy diver, and he's sitting in our 10-day consultation, and he is not interested. He doesn't want to become a minister. He doesn't want to hear nothing. And he's sitting there because his friend told him to come along. 
So he comes along, and his business is doing fine. And so, but he has no desire to use his business to extend the kingdom of God and so on. He's fat, dumb, and happy and doesn't see the connection. So the stick of you can be a minister, Jesus died, so you can be an apostle in the marketplace, you, no, no interest. So then you take, the carrot didn't work, so then you take out the stick. So then I said to him, okay, here's the story. Let's talk about your business, Malachit it was called. How many employees you got? Eight. Okay. Are they married? Yes, all married. Kids? Yes, that's 32. I said, do these people install the kitchen cabinets that they make? No, I have three subcontracted teams, 12 in a team, 36 guys who do the installations. So I do the math and I add it up quickly and I said, you know the average size of a church in America? He's like, I don't care. I said, it's 75. It's about what you got here. So I said, how many kitchens do you do a year? 500 kitchens. Now we're talking about in Constantia, Bishop's Court, Newlands. I said, how many people in each house? Four people in each house, roughly. I said, tell me a church in Cape Town that has 2,000 new people a year. New. 2,000 new a year. I said, should you get to heaven, the question won't just be what did you do with Jesus, but what did you do with those 2,000 new people? If you're in business 30 years, that's 60,000 people. He's like, oh, shucks. But not exactly what he said. Right? So, so now he's like, are you telling me, like, God's going to hold me accountable for those 60,000 people? Uh-huh. And then I said, there's your suppliers, there's your auditors, there's your lawyers, there's all of that kind of stuff as well. Then I said to him, do you sell a kitchen to everybody you meet? No, one in three. So I said, you meet with another 1,000 decision makers every year. So now it's 3,000. That was the Friday. Then I asked him, Dominic, what's it going to take to show you that God's interested in your business? He said, I have a branch in Pardon Island. I don't want it. If somebody bought it, I'd know God's interested in my business. So I said, okay, that's a deal. Saturday, his wife says to him, honey, some guy called you, returns the call. The guy says, I see you've got a branch in Pardon Island. Can I buy it? So now God's got his attention. Why? Because God markets through signs and wonders. That's what he does. So now, Sunday, Dominic's in church. I mean, he's going through his Bible. He's at what used to be called Meadowridge Baptist, but now has a cool one-word name, like all the church do, connect, edge, ledge, whatever. They all have the, <laughs> this, the rebranding of the church. Anyway, so he goes off to the church and finds some obscure verse. He's going through his Bible, and he comes on Monday, and now he's engaged. Why? Because he's thinking about those 60,000 people he's accountable for. And then a few days later, he gets an idea. What about those 500 kitchens I take out of those houses? If I could knock those kitchens down and put them together, I could make three kitchens, kitchens out of every kitchen and put them in the shacks in Kailicha. That's another 1,500 shacks with another four or five people per shack. I can reach now through my little eight-person company. I can be reaching about 10,000 people a year. And guess what? Then he's amped up. He's excited. Now he starts to pray. Now he starts to read his Bible because he's got a purpose. I saw him four months later. I said, Dominic, how's it going? He said, it's awesome. It's great. I said, what's going on? He said, yesterday, eight guys with AK-47s came and robbed the factory across the street. <laughs> I said, uh, 
What's so good about that? He said, no, no, I've been trying to get those people to my Bible study because now I have a Bible study in my business, but they didn't want to come. But as soon as the AK-47 guys have come, I'm across the street. They're like, pray for me, pray for me. He's like, come to my Bible study. So now the guy's got a purpose and he's got, a, he's got something to do in the kingdom in his regular business. Back to Jakarta, right? So back in Jakarta, there's this guy. 50 employees, and he decides, if these people are part of my household, I'm going to go and visit them and see what they're like and see if their toilet is good enough for somebody who works for a Christian. If not, I'll pay to remodel their toilet. Now, if you've been to Jakarta, Haleetai Squatty Potties, you know them? There's flat things over there. You've got to have very, very good balance. Only the Asians can do this. I don't know. Anyway, it's amazing. Terrible. But that's what they have. So he goes to their houses. Two years later, we go back to see the guy, and we ask him, how's it going with the toilets? He said, I'm not doing them anymore. We thought, ah, oh, it was a pretty good story. But why aren't you doing them anymore? No, when I got to the house, I saw their whole house was a mess. I'm doing new houses or remodeled houses for my employees. I have eight in new in remodeled houses. I have another five where I'm getting the loans in from the bank. I'm going to have all 50 sorted out. So what was his business? High Margin business? No, he sold car tires, hubcaps, exhausts. But it's the heart. When God gets your heart, you make a plan for all of your people in your household. That's what you do. This is where the market is ripe. So we have to figure out how to integrate our work and our faith so that people get their toilets taken care of. Why? Because when their toilets are taken care of, opportunities open up. One of his employees called him and said, my son is in the hospital, a Muslim employee, and he's ill, and they can't do anything for him. Will you come and see him? So he goes to the hospital, and he says, can I touch your child? Yes, says the guy, which is in Christian language, lay hands on the kid, right? Can I pray in the name of the prophet Isa? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, because the dad's desperate, right? Praise, God heals the kid. Boom, just like that. No toilet. No prayer. This is part of loving your household. And so and God's interested in all of these kind of things. So anyway, so we repurpose businesses. We teach people how to get their business into God's business. The trick is not to get God into your business. Everybody wants God in their business, and that's easy to get God in your business. You have a tax problem. You have a supplier problem. And then it's, oh, God, God, come into my business. But that's not the point. The question is, how do we get your Hans business into God's business? That's the question. So what's God doing in the world? What's he doing in George? What's he doing in the Western Cape or whatever it might be? And how do you get your business into God's business? So what do you do nowadays, Nardis? Technically in between jobs. <laughs> okay, fine. All right. Uh, I'm going to tell you, the, the armaments industry is an interesting one. How do you get that into God's business? You have to have a philosophy about that that makes sure that when you're doing what you do, it's consistent with what God is doing in building the kingdom. So whether you're in IT, whether you're in farming, whatever it might be, that's what you have to figure out. So that's some of what we do. And we're still doing that. We run that training down in Cape Town. We've got five lo four or five locations up in Centurion, in uh, Lagos, in Nigeria, and then uh, we've done a lot of that training in the States. So how do you get business people to use their skills 
to build the kingdom of God. And the job isn't to make them the head of the finance committee in the church, right? That's not the point. That's a complete underutilization of their skills. That might be a little bit of a training ground, but the key point is to challenge them to see an expression of the kingdom, whatever it looks like, in their place of work. So Jesus wants to have a church in every business in George. Now, it's not going to look like Sunday church. It's not going to have all the black stuff and the this and the that. It's not going to look like this. And it's not instead of. It's Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Right? It's not Jerusalem or Judea. First Jerusalem, then Judea, then. No, no, it's and. God is the God of and. The Hebrew word is vav, V-A-V. And a good Hebrew scroll has 248 columns. And the first word in every column of 248 columns is and. That's it. We've made God the God of or. And if, if you fast, if you pray, Jerusalem or Judea, my neighbor or my pastor. No, it's and. God is the God of and. Correct? Sunday and Monday. And Tuesday. The devil doesn't care what you guys do on a Sunday in George if he's got Monday through Saturday. You can have Sunday. You can get a free pass. The devil can have the day off. You can worship. You can swing from. The, you don't have chandeliers to swing from. You can, do, you can do whatever you like on a Sunday, and the devil doesn't care if he's got Monday. Correct? Okay, one last thing. Then I'll stop for questions. Okay, so our tagline is repurposing business, transforming society. What do we want to see? We want to see societies transformed. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And then there's that Afrikaans verse, and lo, <laughs> lo the Afrikaner. Yeah, so I'll be with you. So how do we do this? And I'll just mention one thing. This, it's not, when I was pastoring a church, I decided we've got to have a discipleship program. So I wrote a little bookie, 10 lessons, who is God, man, sin, money, baptism, whatever, Holy Spirit, you name it, the Word of God, 10 weeks study. But actually, it's not effective. What we need to figure out is, when Herman is doing IT, for example, or web application development, or you're doing running a bakery, what do you do? Negotiations in technology. Yeah, okay. When you're doing negotiations, how do you negotiate, how do you disciple everybody around the table, everybody involved in the deal? Because you have to integrate disciple making into your core business processes. So when you teach people to bake, to cut a lawn, to do IT, whatever, how do you fully integrate making a disciple with that? And then it's a doable task. That's what you can do. It's not getting them to go through a program. It's not a lunchtime meeting. It's a, when you show up five minutes late, I'm going to take money off your pay because you're five minutes late. That shirt is dirty, right? You need to brush your teeth. You need to clean up after you. You need to stay till closing time. You need not because you're going off to a Bible study or something like that. You need to do your work fully integrated that represents the characteristics. Once business people get this, men and women, it doesn't matter what you're running, whether you're running a church, a school, a cleaning business, whatever it might be, 
fully integrating disciple making into core business processes is essential. Then the job is doable. Okay, so um, you've already been given a free lemon book. So uh, the one, the one of the, this is, is this the last book I wrote? So last year I wrote a book on the land issue in South Africa. Who's interested in the land issue in South Africa? Okay, so tell me, I was asked to review some submissions to government, and this is a biblical perspective on land, and there's one or two verses on land. Jubilee, give it all back every 50 years, which is not going to fly with Cyril and the boys, as you know. And so and it's, not, it's, not, it's not a practical suggestion. So, but there's over 1,500 verses in Scripture that deal with land and property in place. Over 1,500. So this is a book on that topic. So Yanni, seeing as you prayed so nicely in the beginning, there you go. Okay. And uh, there is a website, yourmyland.com. The book is called This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, which was actually a protest song written in the U.S. around the issue of land after the Second World War. Whose land is it really, you know? And uh, so that's that book over there. And, um, yep, so that's the story Flate, flate, stories eight. I think I should stop there and ask questions. Does that sound good? Okay, so right now what we're doing is we're training people in repurposing business. We're doing work on leadership, work on transforming society, which means going into a nation like last year we went into Madagascar. And we look at what are the big sectors of society. In my case, I've identified 10 sectors of society, which would be things like business and government, media, healthcare, and all that stuff. I don't care how many they are, but we've identified 10 of them that have a distinctly different wineskin, a distinctly different operating model. So education is different from business. Business is different from capital. Capital is different from government. Gov government is different from an independent judiciary and so on. So we've identified these 10 areas, and then we've th thought through, what does it look like if the glory of God was restored to that area? And then... What's the health of all of those sectors? Like Nehemiah went and checked out the place. How healthy is the healthcare? How healthy is the education, the government? Because our job is to be ministers of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, who are all the pastors in the room over here? I'm going to pick on you. Uh-huh. All right, okay. What does the word world mean? What's the Greek word for world? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, that's what I thought, but it's wrong. It includes people and humanity. It's not ethnos, though. It's cosmos. God was in Christ reconciling the world of armaments to himself, the world of IT to himself, the world of finance. God was in Christ reconciling anything that got out of line with God because of the fall, agriculture, you name it. God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you live in George and your local government is a mess, you are responsible for reconciling it. If you live in George and tourism is bad, you have to ask, what does godly tourism look like? If the court system is messed up, it's your responsibility and my responsibility to say, how can that be reconciled to the truth of the word of God? So when we go into nations, we look at these major sectors or spheres of society, and then we look at the assets. Why? Because in Africa, people say you have nothing, and so you wait for the West to give you something, Philip to raise some money from Philadelphia or whatever. But actually, God is just, and he gives every community the assets that they need 
for that community to be successful. That's true at a national level. I mean, the big sin of colonialism is not apartheid. It's asset colonization, where the assets of South Africa got stripped out of South Africa to build the British Empire. And some famous bank was set up to make sure the money went overseas. And it's going to happen again in Africa if we're not careful, because there's going to be a new wave of discovering assets in Africa. What happened last week? Big fat diamond in Botswana. What happened a few weeks ago? Big fat diamonds in Lesotho of all places, right? And they are discovering with technology today, copper, gold, and so on, where people thought it was all mined out. What's the purpose of the resources of Africa? It's to bless the people of Africa so they can be a blessing to the nations, correct? So we're on the brink of another wave of either asset colonization or we're going to discover the assets that are in our hands and how we steward those assets. So we have to figure that out. So when we go into a nation, we say, what are the assets in the nation? I was up in Egypt, and I asked the guys up there just around the time of the Arab Spring, what have you got in your hands? What do you have? Sand, sun. But they were thinking like fatalists. Why? Because they live in an Islamic community, which is fatalism on steroids. So they weren't thinking, what can we do? So then a guy comes to me a few days later. He said, you know, I've been thinking. If he was Afrikaans, he would have been thinking. But anyway, he says, I have a farm out in the desert. And if I put solar on that farm, I could generate enough electricity to power half of Europe. Now, I mean, he might have been thinking at a stretch, but the fact is he didn't realize what he had in his hand. What do you have in your hands? What are the assets in George? What are the assets in the Eden area? What are the things that God has given you that you can steward? Because actually the Great Commission isn't the only commission. The first commission is work or whack, as we say in South Africa. You're called to work. You're called to steward what God has made. The evangelical, I may just step on all the toes at the same time. The evangelical narrative is God was up there. He had these gazillions of angels. God was lonely, so he needed a puppy. So he made man so he could have somebody to chit-chat through. No, he made man, Adam and Eve, to look after the garden for his enjoyment. He made Adam and Eve to work, not to just hang out and sing Hillsong songs or whatever songs. And so on. He made us to work. We were called to work. We were put on earth to work, to take care of the stuff, and thereby reflect the nature, the character, who God was, who He is, what He's like through our work. That's our first commission, our second commission. Now go and do this in every nation in the world. Do business until I come, Jesus said. Amen. Anybody working in the finance sector? Okay, great. There we go. He has a book on repurposing capital. So I talked about the different sectors of society. So this is the, the area of capital, finance. What would it look like if we actually ran an economy based on biblical principles? This is the question. Do you read? You do. Okay, good. Because this is not a light read. You know why I wrote this? Because in the Federal Reserve Bank in the U.S., they were looking to set up a center of excellence for Islamic finance. Why? Because the Muslims were saying, if you had our belief system around finance, you wouldn't have had a crash in 2008. And one of the ladies who was going through our training came to me and said, I've been asked to work on this 
center of excellence for Islamic finance. And I said, no, 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 we have to redefine this whole thing. It's about faith-based financing, a subset of which is Jewish finance, is Christian finance, is Islamic finance. The big, the uber set, as we went back to, is faith-based financing, principles based on eternal principles that God has put in the Word of God on the area of finance, for example. So what would it look like if we actually return to that instead of the fake system we have right now? There you go. Okay, good. All right, let's take some questions. Uh, if there are any questions, yeah. Well, the kingdom of God always starts with a, a bit of yeast, a bit of salt, a bit of leaven. And so um, our training is actually a 20-week training, and we, then we have a one-week executive intensive one. This is just on the repurposing business side. And all of our training is on video, so there's no issue around quality. That's good. And we have facilitators who are trained who can run with it. So at church, we've set it up so that if you decided you want to do it in chauffeur church, that's fine. We can equip you to do that. It's great. And so that's why people, we have a group in Somerset West and in, um, in Somerset West, in Melkbos. There's a church, Melkbos Baptist Church. They're about to start it over there. And we give them the materials. And we give them all of the support we have. It's like a kingdom MBA. We have an online learning management system. We can add any number of people onto the system. So there's no scalability issue. But it's not a quick fix. It takes a long time to change our mindsets. Hence, it's 20 weeks spread normally over the course. We have five four-week modules. I'll give you a, a flyer on that. And so we find that it is bite-sized and it is scalable. But it's not easy in that it's about 150 hours of work. Why? Because what we tend to do as Christians is we take three guys from Joburg and we put them on a plane to Malawi and they land as experts in kingdom business. You know? And to the man with the hammer, everything looks like a nail. One guy is a negotiating guy and they say, oh, you've got a negotiation problem. The other guy is an IT guy and says, no, no, you've got an IT problem. The other guy is a leadership guy and says, it's all about leadership or whatever. So that's why we've created a hymn book so everybody sings from the same hymn book. And we're not ashamed of the fact that it's a fair amount of work. But it's not a big deal. You're going to work 80,000 hours in your life. So to spend 100, 150 hours learning what God says about kingdom business. And, and it also translates cultures. This isn't like, oh, this is an American thing or whatever. No, it works in South Africa, it works in uh, different parts of Africa, it works in Indonesia, the most populous Muslim country in the world, uh, India, and so forth. I mean, because eternal truth is eternal truth, that's what it is. You might have to change a few of the examples, but not the truth. It works in a township in South Africa, you know, because truth is truth. So I think it's scalable, um, provided people involved get transformed. I think most of them do. Yeah, good question. And your second question was about biggest challenge. Okay, yeah, so we have We used to have issues with where our presenters all had to know the materials enough to present it. So when we had four or five training locations in the Silicon Valley area, we had 60 people involved in training. So then we went into a studio, we recorded it all into video, and we have a backup system so that when you log in there, it'll say, hey, Yanni, here's your assignments for this week. You need to read this. You need to do that. Then you need to go to a session together with a group. And then 
afterwards you've got some homework and we can track who was there, who did what, and so on. And so that's how we overcame it, just using readily available technology. Yeah. But it's not a technological solution. The heart-to-heart -heart is when you guys are sitting together and you're thrashing it out and Yanni says, but this is how it looks in my situation. This is looks how, you know, I'm supposed to be the tough guy in the negotiation. Jesus says I must turn the other cheek. What must I do? Can I use a word of knowledge in a negotiation or is that an unfair tactic? You know, whatever it might be. I mean, when you work out these practical things and, uh, and it's great. I mean, a practical thing in Somerset West last year, we were talking about, my question to them was, what percentage of the products that God has in his mind have already showed up on the earth? In this room, we have hundreds of products, right? We have shoes, we have shirts, we have iPhones, we have cups, we have hats, we have everything, right? But what percentage of the products that God wants to get to humankind have already been invented? I've had people tell me 95%, other guys like 1%. So if it's a small amount, do we all agree if God is infinite, it's probably there's, he's got a whole bunch of products on his mind that could be created out of assets in this area that haven't even come to market yet. So I was talking about this to these guys in Somerset West, and one of the guys whose name is Brunt, as you can tell, not Scottish, but old Brunt, whose brother's name is, is even shorter than yours, Um. That's his name. I'm like, Um? That's your name, Um? Yeah, Um. So anyway, but he makes products that deal with diabetes. So he says, okay, God, if there's more products on your mind that we haven't had yet, so God's given him an idea for coffee, making coffee out of mesquite that addresses diabetes. Isn't that awesome? So, you know, there's practical application to this stuff as you go along. Yeah, so that's a good question. Any other questions? Yeah. Okay, the question on the mic. Sorry, I didn't realize you were back there. I would have been more careful what I said. This is an awesome church. Thank you for having me. Bless you. Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> for not. Yeah. There's five or so reasons for not repurposing your... Okay, so the question is, when repurposing a business, what are the most common reasons for failing to repurpose it or why people don't want to do it? Okay, one is, if I give my business to God, it's going to become unprofitable. He's going to tell me to give everything away. So there's, there's, that's one of the things. So I'm afraid about profitability. Uh, I'm going to have to give up control. When we talk about the purpose of a business, then typically it raises issues around the identity of the leader. When I was a pastor, I said, okay, we're going to have prayer partners in our church, and we're going to have a discipleship program. Everybody signed up who was a woman. No guys, right? Because these are South African men, and I'm not going to sit and tell some other guy my problem. However, you could get guys to work, right? So before we would say, who are the men in the church? Which ones read their Bible? Which ones pray? Which ones are nice to their wives? Which ones don't kick the dog? Right? And now we're left with like 10% of the people or something like that. I have a completely different approach. My approach is, as you remember with Dominique. Dominique, you're a minister. This business is your ministry. God's going to hold you accountable. Now you better get sorted out. 
And he did get sorted out with his wife, with his Bible, with his prayer life, with his generosity. You know, all that stuff got sorted out. So this question of identity is raised when we talk about purpose. Control when we talk about money. Who's in control? Whose business is it? Because, guys, I mean, what's your name? Craig. Craig has no control over anything in his life. He can't control his wife. He can't control his kids. He can barely control. But his business, this is my area. Okay, this is my cave. This is my area is what a lot of guys think. I can't, I mean, I don't know what's going on in anything else, but I can at least pretend to know what's going on in my business, right? And then God says, it's not your business. It's my business. It was bought out. I paid for it. It's my business. It's not your career. When people talk about, I got my MBA, my PhD, it's not your MBA. It's not your degree. It's not your stuff. It's God's stuff. And so not wanting to give up control is a scary thing. The next thing is, if I do this faith thing, if I don't work like crazy, if I learn to work from a place of rest, will God actually come through? Will the money be there? And it's interesting, recently my wife pointed out a scripture to me. God told all the fighting men in Israel, three times a year you go up to Jerusalem. And when you're away, the enemies are thinking, this is awesome. A, behind me, all those guys, they're gone. There's nobody except women and children on the farm. This is our opportunity. But God says, when you go up, if you obey me, no one will covet your land. And so men have to learn, when I, when I get into God's business, I've got to trust God to take care of the stuff I can't take care of. So that's a big tipping point. Um, and then I would say those are the big ones. The other thing is when we talk about partnering, we talk about Adam and Eve, husband and wife partnering, and men and women getting involved in business together, which is God's norm. When I was at Price Waterhouse, if I went into Shell and I found a husband and wife working in the same department or the same company, we had to write it up in the audit report. No, you can't work in the same place, you know, because if you do, there can be collusion and all of that stuff. So you, you can't have a husband and wife working together. It's completely opposite to what Scripture says. God made for Adam Eve. And the Hebrew word for help meet, which translated in the revised George Version is kitchen help, but in the Hebrew, it's two words, etzek keneged. And what does it mean? An equal and more powerful ally. Thirty times this term is used in Scripture. Every other time it talks about God. Every other time it's referring to God. So if your wife is a bit of a goddess, there's, there's biblical precedent for that. So husbands and wives partnering together has just been awesome coming out of this. You know, not that it's always easy, which is why you need the lemon for lover stuff. But, yeah. So this is another one. So I just, I think it's just a bit of fear and it's some misinformation. Misinformation that God doesn't really care about your business and it's not so important. Just get the job done and then you can do ministry on a Sunday. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, great. You had a question. Yeah, so um, you can separate you can separate church and business. You can't separate God and business. You, why? Because business is done on faith. That's how you do business. Paul says in Thessalonians, "I delight to see your what, when I when I think of you, I remember your work produced by faith, your labor of love, and your endurance of hope. That work." doesn't mean soup kitchen. It means work. If you work in IT, your IT produced by faith. 
We work because of faith. That's the motivation for how we work. Why do we work? Your labor of love. We work because we love Jesus. We can't separate those things. And so our work is our worship, and we do it because we love Jesus. That's why we do it. Now, you don't have to be overly religious about it. But if you start loving the people that you touch through your business as if they were part of your household, as if they were part of your church, which I know you do, then stuff changes and stuff open up. And it just doesn't have to look like... I have a friend, Ron. Ron? Ron's grandfather got a word from God to plant churches in Africa. He was in Texas, planted 150 churches back in the day. His father was a preacher, and Ron went to Bible college and... By gosh, he was a preacher. And then some crazy lady came through his church and gave him a prophetic word that he'd be in business. It was Cindy Jacobs, I think it was. So he's like, no, I'm a pastor of a church. But pretty soon he finds himself running a business. The church kicked him out. Why? Not any moral failure or anything. He's a good guy because he had a third child. And they said, we can't afford a pastor with three children. So... He left. I mean, it's tough, eh? Anyway, so I meet Ron, and he's been in business doing internet marketing and stuff for 10 years. But you can see in his heart of hearts, he wants to prick. He wants to be behind the pulpit. This is it. He wants to be Pastor Ron. I said to Ron, okay, let's talk about this. There's Harry over there, and uh, Harry comes to you, works for you, and says, Ron, I've seen your life. I want to know about this Jesus. Would you leave it, lead him to Christ? Oh, yeah, no, no, I've done that already. Great. Okay. Would you baptize him at work? No, I'll baptize him at work. Okay, then Harry sees Sally in accounting over there, and the two of them get together. Would you marry them? Oh, yeah, I'd marry them. Like, eventually I go through this, would you break bread at work? Yeah, we break bread at work. Eventually I go through, what is it that you would do on a Sunday that you won't do Monday to Friday? take an offering. <laughs> That's the only thing he could think of. In other words, he needed to be released from this notion and needed to just say, okay, practically, uh, you know, these are my people. This is the way. It, and this is the, the sphere that God's given me at the moment. And sure, it's not going to be forever. It could be something different. He could still end up with a church. But the fact is, what is the church? Where is the church? And so on. This is the equipping place. I had a guy come to me from Texas and said to me, Brett, i got 20 people meeting in my living room, and uh, I think I'll start a nonprofit and start a church. I said, don't do it. This is a business guy, an entrepreneur. I said, don't do it. Go to your pastor. Tell him what you're doing. And the pastor says to him, this was a church of about 500 people at the time, young pastor, 32 years old, a secure guy in his identity. He said, look, Mike, I have, five, I have 500 people in the church. I have only five generals. The generals take people to war. You are let you off every finance committee, every IT committee. All you've got to do is take people to war. When they get shot, bring them back. I'll fix them, and you can take them out again. And that church is now well over 5,000 people. And the guy didn't start his own little struggling church in his, in his living room or whatever. He was freed up to do what he does. And business people are called to play away games and home games. And the business should be the away game for the church. So that every time you get on a plane, people told me, oh, it's wonderful. The Americans do more short-term missions than everybody. Every year, two million people from America get on a plane to go on a short-term missions. 
big deal. Every week, 12 million business people get on a plane. So we have to change. What is the game all about? Man, we were speaking in, in uh, Bali, and this couple comes to us, and we've told the husbands and wife they've got to work together. The husband's gone home, told his wife, you've got to help me in my church. You've got to do more. You've got to do this. The wife's coming in the next morning. She's looking seriously worried because, so I asked them. They come to me, and I said, so what do you do? No, he's the pastor. How many people in your church? 150. I said, what do you do? I have a hair salon, and I've just started a Japanese restaurant. How many customers you got? 450. So I said to him, what percentage of the people in your church are saved? 100%. I said, what percentage of your people are saved? She says, like hardly anybody. So I said to the guy, every decent church has a missions department. She's your missions department. Secondly, your household has 600 people in it. Her 450, your 150. Who's got the bigger ministry? Now he's looking a little bit worried. <laughs> and you know what he does now? He sweeps the hair in the hair salon and he does the stuff in the Japanese restaurant because now the two things are put together. And she doesn't have to go and play the piano because they got the concept of household and how that thing works practically. Okay, yeah, ma'am. Great idea. Wonderful. Fantastic. Good. Any other questions? And then I think we need to close, right? Adam is starting to get antsy. Yep. Good. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. All right. That's a great question. So the question is, uh, you know, if you're talking about business and ministry and the opportunities with business and ministry, the schedule is going to become very, very tight. There's a book written by a guy called Dr. Rich, uh, Martin uh, Swenson, Richard Swenson, called Margin. And margin is the um, sort of the, on the edge of the page over here, that's the margin. It's the white space. It's when you're riding on the road and you know you've got the yellow line on the side of the road, which in South Africa is just another lane. I understand that. But actually, it's that shoulder of the road is margin so that if a truck comes along, you've got, you've got a way to move out. And he talks about the fact that people are running out of margin. If you simply add marketplace ministry to your already busy life, you will end up like the guy who had the demons cast out and got seven more. It will be a problem. Unless you deal with the dragon of dichotomy, which says that some things are secular and some things are sacred. Unless you understand that business is a calling, work is worship, that we are... Unless you integrate your work and your faith, you will be worse off because you'll say, oh, it's awesome. There's these marketplace ministry opportunities in George. And then I got to do my, my wife wants, wants more of my time. My boss wants more of my time. My customers want more of my time. And now my church wants more of my time. And now I'm going to get involved. And you've got a problem. You have these four circles, right? Think of them as like four saucers over here, right? Four plates that you're spinning. And if you're trying to juggle these four plates, it's a problem. If you overlap them so that your career is your calling, your career and your calling and your community happen together, and you're co-creating with God in these things, when you overlap these things, you create more margin. So you have to deal with this question of integration. How do I integrate? And to do that, you have to get rid of this idea 
that you can have a balanced life. Balance is bogus. All right? If balance was right, because I went, Dr. Lowe Alberts, head of the Atomic Energy Board, the balanced Christian life, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God, favor with man, Luke 2.52, and there I am, 15 minutes on this, 15 minutes on this, so many minutes of that, and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus said, who was the greatest prophet? John the Baptist. If he walked down the main road of George, you wouldn't say he's balanced. He's got crazy clothes. He's got a big beard. He hasn't brushed his teeth in weeks. He's eating a little bit of locust sticking out of his things over here. He's telling people they're a brood of vipers. He's carrying all this. He's not balanced. <laughs> and then you've got Isaiah, butt naked, walking around for three years. Ting, 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 ting. If he was a Cape guy, he'd walk like this. There we go. But still. You know, my point is, balance, I mean, we've got the, why? Because in balance, we're in control. Integration, God's in control. So, yeah, it's a great question. And I've seen guys say, ah, oh, my job is I'll make more money out of my business and then give it to the charities who will do the ministry. Or I'll start a separate charity or a separate foundation. Wrong answer. I asked a guy in Cape Town once, what would you do if your business was the only thing that God had to reach the world? And the screensaver went on, like, no lights on, nobody home. So I said, okay, forget about the world, sub-Saharan Africa. What would you do? Now he's getting smart. He said, I'd capitalize the business more, grow it, make more money, then lay the money at the feet of those who do ministry. Sounds like a religious good answer. I said, wrong answer. You can't give the money away. Not that generosity isn't important. But you have to do the ministry through your business, through your products, through your services. You don't do it whatever it takes and then take the money and say, now I'm going to give it to God. I was preaching in Jakarta. A guy came up to me. It wasn't a very good sermon, evidently, because he told me right afterwards, yeah, I just won the contract to replace all of the passports in Indonesia. It was a $15 million contract. The equipment was only 7 or $8 million, but the other seven or so million was, you know, the golden chair. In other words, he tells me he's just paid a bribe to get the job, and I've just preached in the church. Clearly, I'm a fraud preacher, because, uh, but it's like, oh, whatever it takes, you know, I make the money, then I give it, no, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, okay.